Welcome to On Scripps Biblical World, a podcast exploring the history, archaeology, geography, and cultures of the Bible. Visit us at onscriptstudy biblicalworld. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Biblical World Podcast. This is Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. Thanks so much for listening. This is a new series on Sodom and Gomorrah, and this is part one, so there's more of this to come. I think you'll find it fascinating. Also, if you get a chance to give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, we'd really appreciate that. And if you want to go the extra mile and support us financially, just a few dollars a month, you can do that at onscript.study forward slash donate, and we'd be forever grateful. Thanks so much for listening. Enjoy. Welcome, OnScript Biblical World listeners. Today we have an exciting conversation about Sodom and the cities of the plain. I am Kyle Keimer, and I'm joined by my co-host, Chris McKinney. And Chris, are you ready to talk about this? I think fascinating topic and one that for you know whatever reason has just resonated in the minds of so many people Christians and otherwise of the the history the location the significance of Sodom and Gomorrah of these cities of the plain what took place did it take place when did it take place how did everything unfold there's so much that we're going to talk about today and you're going to be leading through us leading us through this so welcome oh thank you for that wonderful setup um so yes it's a it's a fascinating it's a fascinating topic the the question of the locations of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, and Zoar. Those are the five cities of the plain. Um, but I will try to limit us a bit and say my goal in this discussion uh, is not for us to talk about the historicity of the events as they're described in Genesis, which is primarily in Genesis chapter 19. Um, my goal is not to even talk about the dating, if, if you think it's historical or not historical, of when it occurred, my point is is to talk about the geography, and that's really one of the um, you know one of the things that I think is often overlooked in this discussion is the the geographical implications of where Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities of the plain may be, um, or if we can if we can lo- locate them. And there's essentially two main views. Uh, really, it's three views, but but one of them is quite related to to itself. The first view is the the northern uh, view, where the cities of the plain are are located on the northern side of the Dead Sea. That would be the northern banks, and then there's the southern view, which has two iterations. Uh, one is that the Dead Sea is inundated, um, and that the cities of the plain are beneath it, and therefore the Dead Sea is the cities of the plain. And the other is that there are archaeological sites that are nearby. And so that gives us kind of a broader framework. But before we get into kind of the nitty gritty of those uh, of those details, um, perhaps I should give us our inspiration for this talk. And the inspiration for this talk is the fact that uh, literally, uh, or I should say figuratively, a meteor struck uh, academia, uh, something like... Uh, three months ago or so, four months ago. Uh, actually, I'm looking at it now. It was published on my birthday, uh, uh, September 20th. So now you know my birthday, listeners, um, uh, where they published uh, this the following article 
Uh, Tunkunska-sized airburst destroyed Tal al-Hammam, a middle Bronze Age city in the Jordan Valley near the Dead Sea. And this was published in the scientific reports in the very prestigious uh, journal uh, Nature, uh, one of probably the most prestigious journals, uh, scientifically speaking, in, in the world. And it was published with a wide uh, number of scholars, um, many of them good geologists, good physicists, and that type of thing, as well as part members of the members of the Tal al Hammam uh, team. And the premise was essentially that Tal al Hammam, which was an important Middle Bronze Age uh, city, and everyone agrees uh, with that, was on the northern kind of plain of of Jordan in the yes. in what is modern day Jordan, kind of northeast of the the northern end of the Dead Sea. Right. So directly across from from Jericho. So if you're thinking of the Jordan River as it comes into the Dead Sea, Jericho is on the west, and it's the major city on the western side of the southern Jordan Rift Valley before it goes to the Dead Sea. And Tala Hammam is one of the one of the major cities on the eastern side, which actually has a number of other uh, a number of other sites. And the premise of the article is essentially that there's evidence uh, that there is this massive airburst meteorite that came and destroyed this city right around 1600 BC or so and affected other parts of uh, the northern shores of the Dead Sea. And uh, as, uh, the, as you can expect, even though the name Sodom does not appear in the article, towards the end, we read that um, this might be preserved in the book of Genesis, which is clearly pointing readers to the fact that this is Sodom. And if, if, you, if you looked at uh, Philip Silva or if you look at Stephen Collins, who for whatever reason is not on um, this, this paper, which has something like 30 authors on it, uh, and he's the main excavator of Tal al-Hammam, uh, you can easily find that for 10, 15 years, there's been the argument out there that Tal al-Hammam is the site of Sodom and that the cities of the plain are to be located on the northern shore. Now, in the immediate aftermath of this publication, uh, which was quite controversial, um, not so much because it existed as an idea, but because it was published in such a prestigious journal, you had a number of, of scholars um, on the physics side, on the geologist side and the archaeologist side pointing to problems with this, including also uh, one, one, um, one article by um, Mark Boslaw called Sodom Meteor Strike Claims Should Be Taken with a Pillar of Salt, <laughs> and which he shows that a number of the, that was a nice pun there, uh, <laughs> a number of the photos were um, conveniently edited where north arrows were moved and, and, and so on to show that because uh, in the article, they talk about how the blast destroyed and all of the debris went one direction because of this of this blast that destroyed and turned to glass some of the pottery remains. And he shows, well, actually, you just kind of made it look like that in the photo. And some of it was uh, a legitimate uh, argument from from Boswell. Some of it was um, in reading it. It was just, you know, people make changes to the way photos look. You know, maybe somebody has their foot in the picture. Um, so some of it was back and forth. But definitely scholars were very skeptical. And you have a number of scholars that are really skeptical about whether or not um, the evidence of Tel al-Hammam um, is, is actually a meteor strike. And I would consider myself 
certainly among the skeptics. Uh, I know Kyle is, he's wearing a meteorite uh, cap right now. He's got back from NASA. <laughs> yeah. uh, so he's very excited. You know, he likes this theory, right, Kyle? Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> well, in, in any case, there's a number of scholars that, that have questioned it, you know, that, it, that whether or not it's a meteorite. And, and in fact, I, I think um, a bigger question, though, is not whether there's a meteorite strike here, I think that's a question that I am not qualified to really address. It, this type of question should be dealt with from all the angles that the paper was dealt with, geology, the physics side, um, you know, you know, looking at all those different elements. But I think we can approach the question um, at a more basic level by asking the question, is Tel al-Hamam uh, biblical Sodom? And And my answer is, uh, an unequivocal, uh, it can't be. Um, and I'd like to demonstrate over the course of this podcast and maybe a couple podcasts why it's most unlikely, um, yay, impossible, uh, that Tel Al-Hamam is, uh, is biblical Sodom. Um, that, and that's not to, uh, you know, throw shame or, uh, cast dispersions, uh, at the Tel Al Hamam team, uh, the site is, or, or the or the site, the site is an incredible site. It's a very large and important Middle Bronze Age city with massive fortifications. It's an important Early Bronze Age city as well. It's also very important in the Iron Age. Uh, it's most likely uh, Abel Shatim of the Bible, which gets mentioned as part of the tribal allotment. I think it is of Reuben, and it's where, according to the book of Joshua, we have the Israelites, when they come down, they, they encamp in the plains of Moab. Abel Shatim is one of the, the reference points there. The name itself means like the, the field of acacia trees, and it's an area where you have these acacia trees because it's very well watered um, on, on the uh, in the plains of Moab, which is a, a very rich area, even though it's low, it's right beside the Dead Sea, it gets a lot of the runoff coming up from the area of the Medaba Plateau or the Mishor as it heads down to the west. We also know that, that the site or near the site, there were several important Roman and Byzantine cities. Um, one of the most important ones is Livius, uh, which gets mentioned a lot in Josephus. It gets mentioned a lot in uh, Eusebius, Onomasticon, and other places. And so uh, it's not to say that this is an important site. It certainly is an important site, and there are sites around it that are important. But the question remains uh, why we would ever think that it's the site of Sodom. And so uh, with that said, I'm just going to work us through uh, I'll work us through some of these uh, some of these different views, and then go into some specific reasons with the biblical text why it cannot be um, cannot be Sodom, and why the northern view is is very problematic. Um, those uh, we, we run Chris, the risk. Let me, let me just interrupt yeah, for one second. So for this one, this episode, um, people listening, I know we obviously we're, we're a podcast and very audio, but if you do have recourse to, to access a map of some sort, it might assist in just following along because you can zoom in on Google Earth or something else to to zoom into this region of the Dead Sea, um, and we'll try to identify um, some of these these locations as best as possible so you can follow along with the with this discussion. Yeah, good point, and I, we'll, we'll we'll put up some uh, some maps that can be accessible also that will help follow some of the conversations because it's one of those things that you, you you almost have to have a map in front of you to really be able to get what we're exactly we're saying but 
Um, in any case, I don't know. I the, think you can paint a picture with words pretty well. So I, I don't sell yourself short here. So yeah. Tell al mom tell Kafrin. What's more poetic than that? Um, so essentially the Northern view espouses that there was a meteorite that struck the area of the Northern, um, area shores of the Dead Sea, uh, which they call the, the Kikar Yarden or the circle of the Jordan, uh, and we'll talk about why that's a very problematic uh, regional description for this area, um, and that it destroyed five main cities. They identify Tel El-Hamam, the largest of these Middle Bronze Age cities, uh, with Sodom. They also identify it with Abel Shatim. Uh, so it's already kind of a problem. Like, it's one of those things where, you know, it, it, it tracks all identifications. You know, if it could be this, it can be this also, uh, which is not really the way... Um, biblical geography works. Uh, they identify another site, Tel Kafren, which is north of Tel Al-Hamam on that same plane as Gomorrah. They identify uh, Adma with a site called Tal Nimrin, um, which is already, in my opinion, uh, a, a real danger sign because the name Nimrin preserves the name Beit Nimra, which is, preser- which is a, a site mentioned in the book of Joshua. Uh, moreover, if they were looking for a toponymic connection between the ancient Arabic name and the uh, biblical name, they would have actually pointed to Gomorrah because you have similar consonants between the name Nimrin and Gomorrah, which is why a site in the south called Numeria is often associated with Gomorrah. Um, and so already you're seeing in these identifications very little uh, association or connection between historical geographical practice and, um, and and their interpretation. It's more or less, what are the five biggest cities around Tel Hamam? And we're going to connect them with specific names. Uh, Zeboim, which is the, the fourth city, uh, they would connect with uh, sites f- slightly further to the north, Tal Blibel and Tal Musta, uh, which, again, all of these sites are important, Middle Bronze, Iron Age, some of them occupied in the Late Bronze. By far, in my opinion, the most controversial identification is their association with Zoar. Zoar, um, if you remember the story, and we'll, we'll get into the story in a minute, is the only city that survives the destruction of the cities of the plain. And that's because uh, Lot, uh, Abe's younger nephew, uh, decides that he doesn't want to go back to the hills. Instead, he wants to hang out at this city called Zoar, which itself is in the plain, the Kikar, as it's called. And he goes there and and stays, and the city isn't destroyed like the other cities. And so um, one of the real problems with um, with Collins' view, and he's the, the main person behind this, Stephen Collins, the excavator of Tal Hamam, is that he identifies Zoar with a place on the Nahal Arnon, which is uh, right on the eastern side of the middle of the Dead Sea. Um, and yet there's overwhelming evidence that this cannot be the location of, of Zoar, which we will present in a minute. Now, I didn't do a very good job there holding back what I'm thinking about the view. <laughs> yeah, why don't you let uh, us know I'm what you really coloring think here, Chris. The, <laughs> what would you say? Why don't you really let us know what you think? <laughs> yeah. Um, or let us know what so, you really think. <laughs> yeah, well, let, let's let's get to the southern view, and we'll, we'll take this 
uh, piece by well, piece. So, and so, there, go ahead. One question. One question here. So, do you think? And and I, yeah, I don't know if Collins has this in print anywhere. Why is it just because Telahomam is the largest that they associate with Sodom because Sodom features the most in the biblical account? Um, or do you have any insight as to why the rationale for this identification? Yeah, no, it's 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 a it's it's a good legitimate question. So I, I don't want to speak directly for him, but I, I can I can offer a few of the things I've heard. The first of these is um, in the description in Genesis 13, where Lot leaves uh, Abram, he goes to the east and he goes to the Kikar of the Jordan, um, and he says that he p- he pitched his tent as far as Sodom. We also have uh, Zoar mentioned there, and so he says. You know that that they're up in the area of Ai and Bethel, uh, which is just north of Jerusalem, kind of one of the higher points of the central hills, and just below them. And anyone who visits this place today can still see towards the east and be able to see the Jordan Valley, and they'd also be able to see the Dead Sea. Um, but he says that you know it makes sense that uh, he, that Sodom would have been in view. Um, he also um, points to to. Uh, other ideas um, in in this regard, um, in, in wanting to really find an archaeological site that can be connected with the story. In other words, that if you can find archaeological proof that you have the destruction of these these cities, it would uh, support the the, bib- the historicity of of the biblical narrative. Um, which, uh, again, from our view, there is a lot of historical. Historic, his, you know, historical background to what we look at in these, in these narratives. Um, but we shouldn't force the evidence. And in this case, I think that what's lost in much of this is this historical geographical background. So the main answer to your question is that he would say that it would, could be seen directly from uh, Bethel and and I, and he would add other things as well. And we'll, we'll address some of those things as we go through. But if we get back to this question of of, of Zoar. Um, we have uh, definitive proof that it should be located uh, on the southeastern shores of the Dead Sea in what's called the Gore, G-H-O-R. Um, Arab historians, uh, Crusading Chronicles, uh, they all refer to the city of Segor, uh, connecting it with uh, the, the ancient site of Lot. And there's just a, a abundant evidence that this would be the case. Now, on a related on a related point, the earliest explorers, uh, and we're talking here in the um, mid to late 19th century, those who were really interested in topography and interested in connecting with the Bible, this is actually when the um, view of the northern um, the northern view begins to emerge. Uh, you have uh, figures like Sella Merrill, um, who was an American diplomat, and he was in in charge of the uh, the uh, American Palestine Exploration Society, uh, who uh, <laughs> have been criticized immensely for their very poor job that they did. Uh, the Brits, uh, who did the survey of Western Palestine, essentially just trashed their entire survey because it wouldn't line up with their maps. He suggested that Zoar should be located near Tel Al-Hammam and found a place called Tel Ashagur, um, which which is, is a very similar name to the ancient sources. Uh, However, uh, uh, many scholars pointed out that this name either is a coincidence, 
um, for it being in the area of the north, or perhaps it emerged uh, as an alternative site for Zoar uh, at a later point. But all of the later sources, or all of the Roman, Byzantine, and, and, and later sources, they not only point to Zoar being in the south, but they point it to being one of the most important cities in the entire region. And so much so that in the um, in the you know, 14th and 15th century, it was as mentioned as much as Damascus and Jerusalem. So we're talking about not like we the site cannot be anywhere else but on the southeastern shore. And again, we'll, we'll present more of that evidence later on. Um, now, to be fair, we do have some early Christian uh, explorers uh, that talk about the the uh, uh, the northern option as being the area of Sodom and Gomorrah, but they don't actually ever point to a specific site. One of these guys is named the Piacenza Pilgrim. He writes in the sixth century. He he records some really interesting material, um, but he's actually known more for being confused than he is for actually giving us like real uh, information. Um, when he's in the area of the Jordan, uh, the Jordan River, so right at the, the end of the, the the northern end of the Dead Sea, he says this is not far from the Salt Sea into which the Jordan flows below Sodom and Gomorrah. So he seems to connect the Jordan River uh, and the area of Sodom and Gomorrah with the northern shore. However, he has this to say about the Dead Sea: nothing living is to be found in the sea. Which, if that's right, but then he says not even straw and wood will float in it. And human beings cannot swim, but anything thrown into it sinks to the bottom, uh, which is exactly the opposite of what the Dead Sea does. Nothing yeah, a, can sink uh, yeah. unless and it's a rock. Many people have tried. Have tried. Many to people have tried. Bounce under, but it's yep, not going to happen. It it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Um, and 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 so his his view, let's say, is is up for up for question. And, and another thing is when we think about these pilgrims. Many of them were on a, a, a pilgrim track, that they were going from one place to the next. Most of these explorers visited the area of Mount Nebo, which is just to the northeast of the Dead Sea and the Jordan River, and they made their way directly over to, uh, to Jerusalem. Uh, none of them really visited the area of the south, except some of the earliest, the earliest Christian explorers, which we'll see, make mention that it is in the area of the southeast. And so they actually thought that the desert varnish that is surrounding the area of the Dead Sea, that this was the remnant of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, that this was the ashes, uh, that, it, that the, the area they were destroyed. And so that's one, uh, that's one view. We have another one. Um, uh, his name is Epiphanius the monk, um, and, and he writes in the 7th century AD. That's the thought anyway. He visited the area. He goes to a cave uh, near the Jordan River, and he says, here stands the wife of Lot. Uh, she was a pillar of salt, and near her to the east was a cave, a hole in the ground, emitting smoke. And from the hole comes a voice saying, woe to Sodom. Uh, rumor has it that this is the chimney of Hades, and the prisoners are there, uh, which I love this tradition. This is a fantastic tradition, um, but it, not exactly the best proof for locating uh, Sodom and Gomorrah on the North Shore. And that's really it as far as the church 
early church tradition, and this is a relatively late church tradition, uh, for putting uh, Sodom and Gomorrah on on the northern shore. Um, so you really have to 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 come up with other uh, other views. And so we're, we're going to come back to some of the northern stuff a little bit later on. Now let's talk about. Hold on, Chris. One this, one thing before go we go to the, to the south here. I just w- with these pilgrim accounts, I think it's it's important to know that you know it, yeah, they're always um, they're a great source of detail and reconstruction of tradition and, and sometimes history. But each one needs to be taken on its own own account, and so yeah, we. You're can't saying they need them. to be taken with a pillar of salt. Oh yeah, a, a grain pillar. of salt. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I've you know I could give examples from other ones in the Sri and other regions where they confuse you know the sites of the Philistines with you know claiming that they're all located right on the Mediterranean coast, which we know they're not. And does that mean that we need to throw the baby out with the bathwater? Well, no, obviously it, it doesn't. But at the same time, there are some of these pilgrim accounts that are more useful than others, and we can evaluate this based on you know, more recent archaeological excavations, developments in our understanding of historical geography, or any number of other fields as well. And so, you know, just because we have something in the tradition, or even just because there's something in the, the toponymy, we need to evaluate it from a number of different um, angles before we can really lock it in. And in this case, you know, the northern tradition seems, from what you've you've highlighted, there's Number one, it's very sparse data for it. Number two, the data that does exist is a bit problematic. Yeah, definitely. Definitely that's the case. And I would say for our listeners uh, who are who may be interested in uh, Christian pilgrim traditions, a lot of people don't like these. They think they're not that valuable. I actually think that there's a lot of really interesting details in them, including the one we just read. You know, this is the whole, the chimney of Hades where the prisoners are. Uh, I mean, that's pretty epic. Um, so they, they they reveal like ideas and thoughts about what Christians were doing in the land at the time. And even in that point was right around the time that uh, the, the land was becoming uh, controlled by Islam. So it's interesting the way they, they would think about these things, but you can really grade it um, where you have Eusebius and Jerome and everyone else. So if you, Eusebius and Jerome say it in, uh, for Eusebius, it would mainly be in the Onomasticon, um, which is his place names um, survey, really one of the first Bible dictionaries for places that we have, which is what he was trying to do. And then Jerome translated that and added his own notes um, a generation later. And Jerome adds much more in in and others, uh, another commentary. So if they suggest it, you don't have to take it as gospel, uh, but it has a much bigger weight. And the reason for that is, is not only were they excellent um, scholars in their own day, in their own right, but they're much earlier than many of these other, these other sources. Um, now let's, let's and, now and turn I, our, I'll just add oh, also, ahead, yeah. they, they literally, they lived in the land. And so we, not only do we have, we have to consider the quality of the sources as well. And so these pilgrims, they're coming from overseas and visiting. And, you know, I can remember the first time I was in Israel, I was seeing stuff. It was, it was a bit overwhelming. You go from one place to the next place, to the next place, and it's all fascinating and interesting, but then you come home and try to remember everything or you try to write it down at the time. And you might not always get everything right, but Jerome, you know, lives in the land. Eusebius lives in the land. They're far more familiar with the lay of the land itself, even with any existing local traditions as well. And so the quality of their their them as sources is going to be of a different caliber than someone who is just coming through on a, a pilgrimage account. Definitely. I mean, and for those, just to add one other layer to this, 
Eusebius lived in Caesarea um, for much of his life, and he had access to this huge archive of all of these sources, uh, probably one of which was Origen, who had lived in the century before, who uh, did much of what of what Eusebius did and may have been, even been the primary source for Eusebius. And so we can trace it not only to an early fourth century, but perhaps even a third century. And Jerome lived the, the last decades of his life in a cave underneath the Church of the Nativity, uh, translating the Bible from Hebrew and Greek to the Vulgate. I mean, so these guys really know what they're what they're talking about, um, at least given the, the constraints that they lived under. Uh, so with that, let's let's turn our attention now to uh, the southern the southern view. Um, and as I said before, there are there are two options: the early the early Bronze Age view, let's call it. And the um, the one that will will argue for the inundated sea view, if you if you want to give it a term, and and in their related views, both of them see the evidence as being um, clearly in the south, based upon the the geographical parts of the of the of the Hebrew Bible that we look at in Genesis, um, but they have different perspectives on how we are to identify specific cities, and so this view is is really much a, a product of the history of, of archaeology and tradition going back into the early part of the 20th century and the mid-20th century, and it still has proponents until this day. Essentially, what it, what it does is it connects different large ruins in, on the eastern and southern side of the south part of the Dead Sea with the biblical cities. And, and here we should just also stop and say a thing about the nature of the Dead Sea itself. The Dead Sea is a salt lake, um, and, and even in the name, you can see the name sea, which shows you that that in Hebrew there is no word for uh, for lake. It receives all the runoff of the Jordan River. It receives all the runoff from the east and the west. Until recently, where the Jordan doesn't really flow yeah, anymore. Yeah, so. they, they cut it off. And, and actually, there's plans to pipe it in from the Red Sea. Um, so there's all kinds. So it, it's it's a a place where everything goes to die. Like it's a and there's there's death all around it. Thus 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 the name. Um, but it actually has two main parts. One is the very deep northern basin. Um, it's uh, this is the way I always remember it. it the, the shore on the west of the Dead Sea is like fourteen hundred feet below sea level, and the depth of the Dead Sea on the northern basin is negative fourteen hundred feet below sea level, like fourteen hundred feet below that. So it would be twenty eight hundred. So it's a quite a quite a deep basin. Whereas the southern basin is is much higher in terms of the uh, in terms of its depth, and it at various times can dry up uh, depending on weather patterns that can shift and change over millennia. Um, and today uh, the, the Dead Sea is very low, um, but we have uh, a lot of data on this as to how it's fluctuated. And so that's an important point. There's a northern basin and a southern basin. The southern basin is much more shallow. And if you look at aerial photos uh, today, and even if you drive by it, you will see that it is mined it is used by Israel and Jordan for the purposes of collecting all kinds of minerals. Uh, and in case you didn't know this, just go to your local mall and you'll see the product uh, because there will be Israelis at every mall known to mankind uh, selling Ahava products. Uh, and that's where this is coming from primarily. And so that's an important point to note. And so the, the Southern view, early Bronze Age cities uh, view, let's call it, uh, they connect it with the following places. 
Sodom is connected with a place called Bob Edra. Uh, Gomorrah is connected with Numera, um, which again, you can hear the similarity uh, in the names. Uh, by the way, Gomorrah, like Gaza, uh, is not actually their biblical name. Um, it's a, it's the G that we have in our English Bibles uh, comes from Greek because it was a it was actually a, a, a very guttural uh, consonant that is coming. So it's actually Amora, not uh, not like Miamor, but uh, Amora, uh, you know, and, and so is in the case of Gaza's Aza. But nevertheless, the, the names are somewhat similar. In the case of Adma and Zeboim, they identify it with other sites called Kanazir or another place called uh, Fife, which is further to the south. And Zoar is identified with most likely where its location is, a place called Es-Safi, not Telesafi. That's biblical Gath, but the same, the same, uh, the same name. So and all these, these are sites located are, in. Sorry to interrupt. These are all located in modern-day Jordan today. Yes, exactly. All these sites would be located in, in modern-day Jordan. Now, about these sites, uh, several of these sites have been explored. All of these sites have been explored. Uh, in the case of Babedra and Numera, they've actually been excavated. And it was shown that, that they are very large and important cities during the 3rd millennium BC. And uh, we're talking about up into about 2500 BC. Now, uh, those of you who are listening might think that sounds not quite like what I've heard before. Um, and the reason why I'm giving the, the date 2500 BC is because in recent years, the dating for what we call the Early Bronze and Intermediate Bronze Age has been really changed to where now the thought is, is that the Intermediate Bronze Age is actually a much longer period uh, going instead of what was traditionally said from about 2300 to 2000 BC uh, to now where it's pushed up. Uh, or pushed back, I should say, uh, to 2500 BC. And so in some ways, this view, if we are to date uh, these sites according to the um, the current understanding of, of, which is mainly based on radiocarbon dates, it makes it even less likely that these sites can be associated with, these, with the, um, the cities of the plain. The reason for that is, even if if you're wanting for there to be a direct historical connection between early Bronze Age sites that are destroyed um, 2500 BC or so, and what's described in Genesis, even the most conservative of scholars has a difficulty because the most conservative view puts Abraham like around 2000. And so there's a, a long period of time. I mean, that's the, the time difference uh, between, uh, let's say, the discoveries of the America and today. Uh, so it's, it's, it's quite substantial. Um, and even if you to go back to the older view, it's still several centuries um, difference. And so that leads us to the, to the question of, um, to, to question these identifications. Um, and related to that, these sites besides Zoar are never mentioned again as living cities afterwards. And that's gonna actually be an important point moving forward. Yeah. Let, me, let me just add in here, Chris, too, with, with the whole kind of attempt to um, corroborate the archaeology or the, the the names of these sites with the biblical tradition again with some of these patriarchal kind of ancestral stories from a biblical perspective we're we're very limited because the bible doesn't give us specific dates or chronological anchors that we as archaeologists historians uh, can work with and so again there are a number of different views out there as to when 
if you assume Abraham or any of them are historical figures, when they would have lived. And again, there's a number anywhere from 2000 or, or more recently down to 1500 would be the time of these so-called patriarchs. But as you pointed out, no one would, would push them back as early as the early Bronze Age, that there's no one who does that. Yeah. And, and, and I think that's a, that's a really important point. So that's why we're actually kind of avoiding the question of chronology because there's a, a wide perspective on if the patriarch, if, if people think the patriarchs were actual patriarchs, if there were people, uh, and, and when they would have lived. And, and again, we have, we could do another podcast on that, but, but the point is not about the historical and chronolo chronological issues, but about the geographical one. And even if you would assume uh, the, you know, that, that you could connect these cities, like there's the etiological interpretation that you often find in these stories. Uh, you see it sometimes with Jericho and other places or I, where uh, a critical scholar will say they saw the, these large early Bronze Age cities and they just connected it with this ancestor. Uh, that theoretically could work here, but actually the text very explicitly says the Dead Sea is the place where these where these areas were destroyed. In other words, there is an etiology. Etiologies uh, can be a negative word to some people's ears, but it just simply means an explanation of origins. And the etiology very clearly says the Dead Sea is the Valley of Sedim, which is where these cities are. In other words, the Bible almost explicitly says Sodom, Gomorrah, Zebulim, and Adma are located in the area of the Dead Sea itself, uh, which is what uh, our, th our third and final view is and the view that I would uh, hold to, and that is this idea of inundation, that the Dead Sea itself is inundated as the result of the destruction. Now, the question is, is that historical or not? And the answer is impossible to know because it's saying they're beneath the Dead Sea. Now, immediately some of our listeners might say, well, they put submarines in the Dead Sea and, and we do know that Russia did this and others have tried. Uh, but again, the problem, it's not like you're uh, going in a submarine in the Atlantic Ocean looking for the lost city of Atlantis which again, they haven't had much success there either. But the whole point is, is that the Dead Sea is constantly inundated. That doesn't just bring water, it brings minerals, it brings soil. And so there's been many different studies that show how you can actually date parts of the, the, the Dead Sea and its changes over time by looking at the different sediment layers. And so really, again, if, if you like to have the story of the cities of the plain as being a historical event that occurred or not, you, you actually will never be able to prove it one way or the other because the Bible, in my opinion, says that the cities of the plain are underneath the Dead Sea. And the Dead Sea is not just water, but it's layers of sedimentation that go back uh, to before you know when the Dead Sea was formed. And we have layers, meters and meters of these layers that can be traced from the present down back through the early Bronze Age. So all that to say, uh, it doesn't matter that anyone um, went and looked along the shore of the Dead Sea and didn't see any ruins. It doesn't matter that there's a submarine that went underneath. They wouldn't be able to see it. Uh, it's just, it, it doesn't make any sense. And I see this in the literature all the time, and it just seems like such a basic point, but it's often, um, it's often ignored. 
And so yeah, in and this case, one aspect I'll just add ahead. with this, Chris, is is you you go go to the Dead Sea today, and just the you can literally from year to year almost see the changes in the topography because of the mineral growth, the, the deposits, the growing of salt um, crystals, basically. Um, and so it is a very fluid landscape. Just to add that to your point. Yeah, it definitely is. I mean, one of the fun things is is looking back at old photos. In fact, uh, the PEF even has a place that you can pass if you look carefully when you're uh, when you're going uh, on the on the west western shore. You can find where the PEF's high water mark was in the in the uh, when they did the survey of Western Palestine, and so it's certainly gone down, and it will continue to do so unless drastic measures are taken. Um, but nevertheless, the point still remains that massive amounts of water with minerals bring sedimentation, and that changes the landscape over time. We're not talking about uh, we're not talking about a tell that is in the hills or uh, somewhere else. It, it, it's going to constantly have the sedimentation. Now, again, whether or not the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is a historical event or not. Um, we can't ultimately know that because of what I just described. And so if we look then at the Southern Basin view, uh, the inundation view, uh, it does seem that uh, between 2500 and 1700 BC, there was a kind of drought. Um, and again, this data is kind of changing all the time as, as more and more research is done. Uh, but presumably one could imagine that the Southern Basin was uh, completely, completely dry as the result of uh, this drought. And it presumably could be the locations of these four cities. Uh, as we've already argued, Zoar must be located at Gorasafi, which is, uh, again, on the southeastern shore at the end of the Wadi El Khasa. Beautiful site, lots of greenery. Recent excavations have uh, have 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 taken place here. They've actually found uh, the Iron Age site. The site is mentioned in the in the Iron Age. Um, we'll talk about that later. It's also mentioned in a number of sources in the Byzantine period and the Roman period. And it, the see that the site shifted over time, probably as the result of you guessed it, sedimentation, erosion, uh, making things making things change. And so Zoar is there, and that would be somewhere a point of agreement between the two southern views. But the other four cities should all be connected with places inundated beneath the Dead Sea. Sodom itself, we don't know where it would be <laughs> underneath underneath the Dead Sea, but its name is preserved actually on the western side. There is an Arabic name, Jebel Usdum, which preserves the tradition that Sodom would be on the south. Many have pointed to the idea that Gomorrah is preserved in Wadi Numaira. That's a possibility. We can't say with any certainty. I kind of think it's not because we have in Isaiah and Jeremiah the names Waters of Nimrin. So probably Numaira is related to the city of Nimrin, which also gets mentioned in, in later sources. Adma and Zebuim, uh, I think, are most likely uh, in the same area. Um, there is the possibility with these that um, others have suggested in the past that they're actually much northern, more, much more north, like the city of Adam uh, at the uh, the area of the Wadi Farah. And Zebuim is another place which is, there's a valley of Zebuim, which gets mentioned in 1 Samuel chapter 
uh, 14. Um, but that seems to me less likely. Zebuim is a, a hyena or a jackal. So it's a common name for this area. And these names actually also appear in Genesis 36. Um, of course, Adma is the same name as Edom. It's the same same root. And Zebuim um, is the, a very similar name to one of the, the Edomite tribes known as Zibian. So one could just as easily make the case that there's some relationship between these areas and uh, Edomite people in the vicinity. But again, I'm not willing to die on any of those hills, just pointing out some of the, some of the background there. Now, with that said, we, we looked at some of the uh, Christian evidence about the site being on the north. Um, now let's look at some of the, a little bit of the Christian evidence uh, about the site being connected with the area that was engulfed. Uh, in other words, that the, that the Dead Sea is the place where Sodom and Gomorrah actually are. And this is what we find in Theodosius, who wrote in the early 6th century. He says, this Dead Sea is the one where Sodom and Gomorrah were engulfed. In other words, according to Theodosius, Tel el-Hamam is certainly not engulfed. It's you know right there. You can see it until today. So it's unlikely that he would be right about, that Stephen Collins would be right about that, at least according to that tradition. Another point that often comes up in this discussion is something that um, often happens in archaeology when it relates to biblical texts, and that is um, going back to the 60s and 70s, the ongoing excavations at Ebla, Tel uh, Mardik, uncovered a series of archives. Which and is in, it northern, was, in northern Syria, by the way, for our right, listeners. No, sorry, yeah, good point. Northern Syria, right on the edge of Mesopotamia. Beautiful site, massive city uh, that was occupied in the third millennium and then largely abandoned afterwards. Uh, they, the, the excavators looked at these documents and found what they thought were all kinds of biblical connections, one of which were the names uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, and this was widely published as proof. This was, uh, you know, an apologetic, you know, that, that the Bible is true. And yet, within a fairly short period of time, it was demonstrated that there is absolutely no reason to connect the two. Um, between these texts and what you see in the Bible. And many, many scholars have since backed off of that, although here and there you will see scholars still making this claim that, in our view, has been thoroughly debunked. Uh, Chevalis, in his great book on Mesopotamia and the Bible, uh, he lays the blame squarely at the feet of Biblical Archaeology Review um, in saying that they had, they had popularized it and leaked it to the public. Uh, and, and we're not against Biblical Archaeology Review here, but we just need to simply say that we shouldn't hold too fast to these um, apologetic, um, too-good-to-be-true statements, because they often are just that, too-good-to-be-true. Uh, and we would say that Ebla has nothing to do with Sodom and Gomorrah. And so, as we, as we move through this, um, actually, the, 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 the story itself mainly has to do with Genesis. I mean, this is where all of the uh, texts that we know about the story of Sodom and Gomorrah are preserved in really the, the, the patriarchal narratives um, for Abraham. So we can point to Genesis 13 through 19 as the area where Sodom and Gomorrah are, are mainly mentioned. Now, we've already noted kind of the difficulty 
with using those texts, uh, especially if we're trying to talk about it from a um, from a, a scholarly standpoint. Many people have different views about the dating of Genesis and so on. And so you can actually start at, a, at let's call it a, a firmer basis by looking at Sodom and Gomorrah in connection with the prophetic literature. Sodom and Gomorrah, um, or the story of the, the destructions of the cities of the plain, are first mentioned in Hosea. Hosea is our, I shouldn't say first mentioned, I should say everyone agrees upon Hosea is writing in the mid-8th century. And he mentions uh, Ephraim becoming like Adma and Zeboim. This tells us there that in the mid-8th century, there is a very strong tradition about the area of the, the Dead Sea being connected with the place of destruction. Ephraim is compared to it. In the book of Amos, we have Israel, which is written right around the same time frame. We have uh, Israel being compared to as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah in verses 411. In the late 8th century, we have Isaiah uh, referring to Jerusalem uh, as being like Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, he even compares uh, Babylon, and this is Isaiah chapter 13, and saying, you shall become like Sodom and Gomorrah. We could go even further into the 7th, 6th centuries and onward, where Sodom and Gomorrah in the books of Zephaniah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, they all speak of Sodom and Gomorrah in connection with different uh, entities that they are speaking out against. You Ammonites and Moabites, you're just like Sodom and Gomorrah. You people living in Jerusalem, you're going to be like Sodom and Gomorrah. It goes all the way down through history into uh, the end of the, of the first temple period. We should also say that this is also plays a role in how Ezekiel, the prophet who writes uh, from, from Babylon, how he views uh, Israel. He imagines uh, Samaria as, uh, as Sodom uh, and then compares Sodom and Samaria to being better than their younger sister, Judah and Jerusalem. Later on, he will describe how the area of Sodom and Gomorrah, the area of the Dead Sea, will be renewed with water that flows from Jerusalem in Ezekiel 47. And he specifically draws attention to the area, even though he doesn't mention it by name, he refers to the water coming down to Engedi and Enel Glime, which both of these springs, both of these places must be located on the southern end of the Dead Sea. And so there's here we're, we're really pointing out two things is that in the very firm chronological text that we can that we can date and everyone basically agrees upon from Hosea down through Ezekiel as representing um, prophetic literature of the first temple period. Sodom and Gomorrah are part of that tradition, um, and they seem to point to it being in, in the South. Uh, we can even point to some of the Gospels. We won't read all of the texts, but we read about how uh, Jesus used Sodom and Gomorrah as a sign of destruction uh, for the cities of Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. He says, places where miracles happened, it will be uh, that they don't believe, it will be better for them on the day of judgment than the inhabitants of, or we better for Sodom and Gomorrah than, than those places. He even makes special mention of Lot's wife, uh, which tells us that this is a, a living tradition. It's a part of the things they're thinking about in a very apt way of describing destruction and the um, really the, the, the issue of being exposed to the truth 
and continuing to reject it. Paul makes the same thing in, in Romans where he says, Isaiah will say there'll be a remnant that will be saved, but for those who are not, they'll fare like Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, and and this, this tradition really continues all the way through the New Testament. We find it in Second Peter. We find it in Jude. We find it in the book of Revelation. All of them are mentioning again and again Sodom and Gomorrah as this place of destruction. One interesting thing um, is, and this is a bit controversial because we're not absolutely sure this is what it says, but in the destroyed ruins of the city of Pompeii, uh, it was discovered an etching of a graffiti uh, that says, it seems to say Sodom and Gomorrah. In other words, some pious, probably Jewish or Christian person came into the ruins of, of Pompeii and uh, <laughs> trash talked the city that just got literally fired and brimstoned uh, by, by Vesuvius and wrote Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, and so it's a, it's a very well-regarded tradition that's known all throughout history. Um, and it's well-established at least as early as the mid-8th century, but continuing down uh, to our day. Now, as we, as we move into some, uh, some other things, one of our most important uh, sources here is the source of Josephus. Josephus, uh, who was known by Eusebius and other authors, Josephus was one of the texts that was used uh, by early Christian um, pilgrims and, 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 and scholars and, and church fathers, it along with the uh, Old and New Testaments. Um, and, and he very clearly points out where that, that Sodom is itself the area of the Dead Sea. This comes from uh, Antiquities. Uh, and he's in antiquities is a essentially a paraphrase of uh, the the Old Testament. It's you know written in, in Josephus's way of explaining things, often making uh, contemporary statements um, that reflect you know his own day, but also try and point back to what things were like uh, in Scripture. And he's talking about the four kings from the north. He says these kings had laid waste all Syria and overthrown the offspring of the giants. And when they were come over against Sodom, they pitched their camp at the vale called the Slime Pits. For at that time, there were pits in that place. But now upon the destruction of the city of Sodom, that valley became the Lake Asphaltus, which is, of course, the name of the Dead Sea. And so you can see in the first century, which is the time period, of course, of Jesus and Paul and Second Peter and Jude and so on, Book of Revelation, Josephus tells us explicitly that the Dead Sea is where Sodom is. He, he describes it in, in other places as well that we won't, uh, won't necessarily go into. Uh, one important point, though, is, uh, is worth making, and that is he also describes uh, the layout of the Dead Sea. Um, he gives us a lot of details, some of which are, are rather interesting. We won't talk about here, uh, but he describes the the length and the width of the Dead Sea, uh, probably of which are characteristically incorrect, because the, as the saying goes, never trust Josephus when he's talking about himself or talking about numbers, because he's he's often off in his math. But he says that the length of the lake is 580 stadia. It's a little bit less than that. Uh, where it is, is extended as far as Zoar in Arabia. 
and its breadth is 150. The country of Sodom borders upon it. And so he uses explicitly there a reference to Zoar as being at the southern end, that he's referring to it at, at, at its maximal distance, which again matches what we've just read from the biblical sources about the location of Zoar and about all of the other sources, which completely contradict what uh, Stephen Collins and others have said. To add one other layer to this, in the 1960s, uh, a, a fantastic discovery was made in the Hull Hever. Uh, this is part of the Dead Sea Scroll uh, corpus, even though it actually dates some 60 years um, later, because this is related to the Bar Kokhba revolt, and what we call the Babatha Archive, which is a just an amazing group of texts related to this woman, Babatha, this Jewish woman who lived in the area, who unfortunately for her probably uh, died because she never came back to get her important documents, many of which were legal and would have been really crucial for her life. But thankfully for us, they were preserved uh, and left for us to understand. And in this text, we have references uh, to Zoar. We have references to the port of Zoar, as well as in Gedi. Again, pointing out the obvious fact that Zoar is located on the southern end of the Dead Sea. And so with those kind of laying out the groundwork for our discussion of Sodom and Gomorrah, um, we've now seen that from the 8th century down to the 1st century AD and even a little bit into the 2nd century AD, that there's a lot of clear evidence that Zoar is in the south um, and that this tradition is very much uh, alive uh, in, in, these, in these later periods. And that all sets the, let's call it the historical geographical framework for our discussion of the texts themselves, which are uh, the mentions of Sodom and the cities of the plain in the book of Genesis itself. Uh, but uh, we'll probably do that next time because we're already pretty long and there's much to say about this very interesting topic. In case you only listen to part one of this uh, discussion, let's just say that we, I firmly believe that Sodom and Gomorrah should be connected, that the, that the biblical tradition points to them as being inundated in the Dead Sea and most likely in the southern part of the Dead Sea, which I think we can get there even if we don't read Genesis. But Genesis, I think this makes abundantly clear. And there's several interesting things that have often been overlooked, which we'll point out in the next installment of Sodom and Gomorrah. <laughs> Yeah, great, Chris. I mean, this has been excellent to to walk through all these texts and all the data, not only you know, classical, um, you know, late antiquity type sources, but the biblical texts as well. And and you're right. I think when we turn to Genesis and the specific texts there that deal with it, we're going to see some more of the same. That you know, and particularly we're going to look at some of the interesting terminology that we have here, the um, the kikar and some of these other other terms that. You know, we do need to interpret and understand, but it's been really helpful to consider the different angles that you've brought here. And I think, um, you know, it really raises the burden on those who would argue for a northern um, location for these cities that, you know, wh what is the data that is really supporting that uh, in light of the large amount of data that actually indicates a southern location or favors a southern location. And so it'll be interesting, yes, when we come back to our next segment on this to, to further the discussion and see what we what we draw out of of Genesis and what it has to preserve. So 
thank you for walking us through this. Uh, hopefully it's been of, of great interest. I know this has just been fascinating from my perspective. And I think, again, this Sodom and Gomorrah are such a loaded, loaded names that factor into so many traditions that, you know, even continue into, into today's culture. And so I think there's probably a lot of people that are very thankful for just this discussion. And so we look forward to continuing it next time. So Unscript listeners, thank you for joining us this time. We'll be back next time with the continuation of this discussion of Sodom, Gomorrah, and the cities of the plain. Until next time, see you later. You've been listening to Onscript's Biblical World Podcast. If you enjoy this show, please show your support by giving us a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen. You can support the show by visiting onscript.study/donate. Until next time, keep digging.